in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. <laughs> I'm flapping through my I'm flapping through my files here in my purse. I gotta find something something cheerful. Something by Mark Twain, that old pessimist. I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. I think I must concentrate on being cheerful and upbeat. At least for the time being, you know. Ah, I was up most of the night. Muttering, yes, let us fly away to where the press does not depress us every day. Most people dying on the vine with the empire in decline, blah, blah. State of the Union message tonight, six o'clock. Don't miss that. (laughs) The president's memorial speech. Well, after the terror in Tucson, he tried to say the right thing, and according to the pundits, he did say the right thing. I guess that's his job description. God bless his bones. Uh, State of the Union, fate of the Union, the dark birds of history circling. I tried to put together something funny about those of us who call ourselves culture vultures, you know, the way in which we... We dig and consult the entrails and the omens, the signs and the symbols... Try to prophesy, you know, (laughs) what's going to hit next? I'd rather not think about that too much. Uh, I was going to read you some gloomy things, and I think I'll just leave them. Well, there's one thing here. Um, The Berkeley Daily Planet has a new, uh, let's see, it's a very shiny, pretty, good-looking, nice paper uh, the Berkeley Daily Planet. Mm-hmm. Local news and opinions. There's a very moving, nice column called The Public Eye is the Giffords Shooting a Teachable Moment. And yes, of course, this good Quaker writer says that it is a teachable moment. It's Bob Burnett. Uh, basically, though, he says that uh, it presages... More of the same. That's basically what he says. The United States seems to be on a long slide into a pit of violence and anguish. Yep. That's for sure. I made a list when I read this column. I thought of all the wonderful plays we should be doing here on KPFA in order to educate the population in time for it to grow up and go out there and do something. <laughs> it's a little late for justice. Uh, I thought of George Bernard Shaw's play about arms and the man. You know, George Bernard Shaw. He always traced the source of the trouble to arms manufacture. Yes, the guy with the dynamite, the munition. At the end of his great play, Heartbreak House, it's the beginning of World War One, And the women are sitting out in the garden in the... Lovely, lovely evening, you know, uh, looking at the uh, the magnificent scene that is our earth. And they see the uh, 
the lights from the bombs, you know, they're bombing France. And uh, one of the women says, oh, so exciting. I hope they come tomorrow night. Made me think of the first Gulf War when those TV guys, they were all guys, uh, kept shouting about the the uh, fireworks going off over Baghdad. You remember? They were like little kids at a 4th of July party. Whee! You know? Anyway, I don't know how we deal with this human being. Uh, Bob Burnett's article, uh, he mentions the life of Christ as an example. <laughs> Something to the effect, well, the golden rule. Okay, been there, done that. I guess I'm hopeless. I made another pile that I'm going to use from now till summer. Uh, James Thurber, Dorothy Parker, all those wonderful scribblers, the kind of people who decided to study Absurdistan, this place we live in, Absurdistan, try and figure out just what it is uh, about our race, our species, pardon me. There's no such thing as a race. I keep trying to remember that my work here is word work. We're supposed to deal with this language. And I think more and more every day of the millions of words that I learned as a child. And the first meaning, the meaning that uh, came to me with the word say, when I was three or four, how that meaning has so far faded away, all those phrase groups. Uh, this week I was walking around with a little card in my purse that said, blood libel. That's the two words that Sarah Palin used. <laughs> I don't know why I... I have to write some kind of parody uh, about blood libel. It trips it trips me out. Anyway, my my only my only resource is retreat. I want to go to the old. I'm going to read a little bit here of uh, Mark Twain. I I like Mark Twain because he legitimizes pessimism in literature. You know how it is in our age. We're all supposed to be, ah, what, upbeat. We're supposed to see things on the bright side. Always offer a solution. Mark Twain didn't believe in that stuff. He went off um, the deep end at the end of his life. He discouraged his poor wife, uh, telling her that there was no um, divine source, no God. And that was kind of unfortunate because when their children died, uh, she got kind of depressed. Uh, anyway, some years ago, I remember for the evening reading, I put together, um, oh gosh, several hours, I think three hours of extracts from Mark Twain's The Diary of Adam and Eve. And I just loved it. My younger son helped me with that. And uh, somehow or another, it got, it got lost in the machinery, you know. <laughs> the microphone ate my homework. Anyway, somehow or another, it melted. But 
I'm going to do it again if I can find the right actor. I don't even think I'm the right uh, actor for Eve anymore. Maybe I could find two characters. But anyway, I just love the uh, Diary of Adam and Eve because Mark Twain is a hopeless romantic underneath all of his uh, bitterness. He is like most cynics, you know. He's just tired of being ashamed. And so he, uh, is it, he makes light of human foolishness. Let me just read you a little bit, little, little snippets from Eve's diary. You remember now, she has no social order. She has uh, nothing surrounding her to give her a moral sense. Mark Twain says that man is the only animal who requires a moral sense. Eve. This is before the fall, folks, before the fall. She writes, Another discovery. One day I noticed that William McKinley was not looking well. He is the original first lion. He has been a pet of mine from the beginning. I examined him, William McKinley, to see what was the matter with him. I found that a cabbage which he had not chewed had stuck in his throat. I was unable to pull it out, so I took the broomstick and rammed it home. This relieved him. In the course of my labors, I had made him spread his jaws so that I could look in. I noticed that there was something peculiar about his teeth. I now subjected the teeth to careful and scientific examination. The result was a consuming surprise. The lion is not a vegetarian. He is carnivorous, a flesh eater. Intended for one, anyway. I ran to Adam and told him, but of course he scoffed, saying, Where, where would he find flesh? I had to grant that I did not know. Very well, then, he said. You see yourself that the idea is apocryphal. Flesh was not intended to be eaten or it would have been provided. No flesh having been provided, it follows of a necessity that no carnivora have been intruded into our scheme of things. Is this a logical deduction, or isn't it? It is. Is there a weak place in it anywhere? No. Very well, then, what have you got to say? That there is something better than logic. Indeed, said Adam, what is it? Fact, said Eve. I called a lion. I made him open his mouth. Look, I said, look at this larboard upper jaw. Isn't this long forward tooth a canine? I said, yes. I called the lion. Yes, it's Eve who's showing the lion to Adam. Pardon me. 
Adam was astonished, he said impressively. By my. Ah, it is. What are these for to the rear end of it? He asked. Premolars, she said, or my reason totters. What are those two at the back? Molars. If I know a molar from a past participle when I see it, I have no more to say. Statistics cannot lie. This beast is not graminivorous. He's always like that, Adam. He's never petty, never jealous. Always just, always magnanimous. Prove a thing to him, and he yields at once, and with a noble grace. I wonder if I am worthy of this marvelous boy, this beautiful creature, this generous spirit. That was a week ago. We examined animal after animal. Then we found the estate rich in hitherto unsuspected carnivora. Somehow it is very affecting now to see a stately Bengal tiger stuffing himself with strawberries and onions. It seems so out of character. Though I never felt so about it before. Later, another entry in Eve's diary. Today, in a wood, we heard a voice. We hunted for it, but could not find it. Adam said he had heard it before, but had never seen it. Though he had been quite close to it, so he was sure it was like the air, and could not be seen. I asked him to tell me all he knew about the voice, but he knew very little. It was, he said, the Lord of the Garden. It had told him to dress the garden and keep it. It had said we must not eat of the fruit of a certain tree, and that if we ate of it, we should surely die. Our death would be certain. That was all he knew. I wanted to see the tree, so we had a pleasant long walk to where it stood alone, in a secluded and lovely spot, and there we sat down, and looked. Long at it with interest, we talked. Adam said, "It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil, yes. What's that? What's what? Why those things? What is good?" I do not know. How should I know? Well, then, what is evil? I suppose it is the name of something, but I do not know what. But Adam, you must have some idea of what it is. Why should I have some idea? I have never seen the thing. 
How am I to form any conception? What is your own notion of it? Of course, I had none, and it was unreasonable of me to require him to have one. There was no way for either of us to guess what it might be. It was a new word. Like the other one, we, we had not heard the words before. They meant nothing to us. My mind kept running on the matter, and presently I said, Adam, there are these other new words, die and death. What do they mean? I have no idea. Hmm. Well, then, what do you think they mean? My child, cannot you see that it is impossible for me to make even a plausible guess concerning a matter about which I am absolutely ignorant? A person can't think when he has no material to think with. Isn't that true? Yes, said Eve, I know it, but how vexatious it is. Just because I can't know, I all the more want to know. We sat silent a while, turning the puzzle over in our minds. Then, all at once, I saw how to find out. I was surprised that we had not thought of it in the beginning. It was so simple. I sprang up and I said, How stupid we are! Let us eat of it. We shall die, and then we shall know what it is and not have any more bother about it. Adam saw that it was the right idea. He rose at once. He was reaching for an apple when a most curious creature came floundering by of a kind which we had never seen before. And, of course, we dropped a matter which was of no special scientific interest to rush after one that was. Miles and miles over hill and dale we chased that lumbering, scrambling, fluttering goblin till we were away down the western side of the valley where the pillared great banyan tree is and there we caught him. What a joy! What a triumph! He is a pterodactyl. Oh, he is a love. He is so ugly and has such a temper and such an odious cry. We called a couple of tigers and rode home, fetched him along, and now I have him by me. And it is late, but I can't bear to go to bed. He is such a fascinating fiend, such a royal contribution to science. I know I shan't sleep for thinking of him, longing for morning to come so that I can explore him, scrutinize him, search out the secret of his birth and determine how much of him is bird, how much is reptile, to see if he is a survival of the fittest. 
which we think is doubtful by the look of him. Oh, science, where thou art, all other interests fade and vanish away. Adam wakes up, asks me not to forget to set down those four new words. That shows that he has forgotten them. However, I have not. For his sake, I am always watching. They are down. It is he that is building the dictionary as he thinks. But I have noticed that it is I who do the work. Ah, but it's no matter. I like to do anything that he wants me to do. And in the case of the dictionary, I take special pleasure in the labor because it saves him a humiliation, poor boy. His spelling is unscientific. He spells cat with a K and catastrophe with a C. <laughs> Although both are from the same root, Three days later, we have named him Terry, for short. Oh, he is a love. All these three days, we have been wholly absorbed in him. Adam wonders how science ever got along without him till now. I feel the same. The cat took a chance at him, seeing that he was a stranger, but has regretted it. Terry fetched Thomas the cat, yes, Thomas is her cat. A rake, fore and aft, which left much to be desired in the way of fur. The cat retired with the air of a person who had been intending to confer a surprise and was now of a mind to go and think it over and see how it happened to go the other way. Terry is just grand. There's no other creature like him. Adam has examined him thoroughly, and Adam feels sure he is a survival of the fittest. I think Thomas, the cat, thinks otherwise. <laughs> Year three, early in July. I'm reading you extracts from Mark Twain's Diary of Adam and Eve. As you know by now, there are three huge volumes of Mark Twain that he left us uh, to be opened 100 years after he had departed this life. Um, it's, let's see, University of California, Berkeley Press has this one out. Just the first volume is published. Uh, they say that most of the first volume had been published before. In little books like mine, this new, what is it, New Uncensored Writings by Mark Twain. The copy I've got uh, is called Mark Twain Letters from the Earth. Uh, this is the one I would recommend if you can find it in the... Uh, in the second-hand bookstores. This is really old. It cost 60 cents when it was published. <laughs> it's edited by, edited by Bernard DeVoto. Letters from the Earth. It has all sorts of uh, wonderful essays and uh, bits and pieces. My favorite uh, of Mark Twain's worth. I, I, I don't mind Huck Finn, but... Uh, 
As another critic said this morning, I think I was half asleep. What was she saying? She was saying, sort of eat your heart out, Mark Twain, J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield is now our American uh, idol. <laughs> anyway, there's a there's a biography of J.D. Salinger out that may leave something uh, unsaid, God knows, but I have to go out and find out if there's anything that I really missed. Um, the life of J.D. Salinger, perhaps it's better, we don't know. The critics seem to feel that it was always a good idea not to know the great writers because you were bound to be disappointed since the best of them had gone into their books. Uh, this may or may not be true. In any case, uh, Mark Twain has left us what he thought would uh, shock us, I guess. Uh, anyway, he couldn't afford to, to um, reveal some of his work to the public. I, I think mainly because it was so anti-church, anti-Christian, anti-everything, uh, anti-all of the socio-political BS that uh, surrounded him then as it surrounds us now, today. Let me go on a little bit with dear, dear Eve. I do want to read you some more next week, sometime soon. Uh, maybe I can get copies of the Twain biography for our next uh, marathon when we have to raise money. You can get a subscription to KPFA and get a Mark Twain biography, uh, uh, works of Mark Twain, the ones that he wrote and hid from the public for a hundred years. Uh, anyway, in the diary, I just love all the bits where, you know, Eve tried to start a dairy, but the, the uh, dinosaurs, well, she got the wrong sex to start with. But anyway, anyway, she goes on. In year three, she says, uh, she writes, Early in July, Adam noticed a fish in the pond. The fish was developing legs. A fish of the whale family, though not a true whale itself, it being in a state of arrested development. It was a tadpole. We watched it with great interest. For if the legs did really mature and become usable, it was our purpose to develop them in other fishes so that they could come out and walk around and have more liberty. We had often been troubled about those poor creatures, because they were always wet and uncomfortable and always restricted to the water, whilst the others were free to play amongst the flowers and have a pleasant time. Soon the legs were perfected, sure enough, and then the whale was a frog. It came ashore and hopped about and sang joyously, particularly in the evenings. Its gratitude was without bounds. Others followed rapidly. Soon we had abundant music. Every night, this was a great improvement on the stillness which had prevailed before. We brought various kinds of fishes ashore and turned them loose in the meadows, but in all cases they were a disappointment because no legs came. Strange. We could not understand it. Within a week, they had all wandered back to the water and seemed better satisfied there than they had been on land. We took this as evidence that fishes, as a rule, do not care for the land, that none of them took any strong interest in it but the whales. There were some large whales in a considerable lake 300 miles up the valley. Adam went up there, hoping to develop them and increase their enjoyment. 
When he had been gone a week, little Cain was born. It was a great surprise to me, as I was not aware that anything was going to happen. But it was just as Adam is always saying. It is the unexpected that happens. I love this diary. She goes on to say that she put the fish in bed with little Cain to see if they, you know, could play with him. But, of course, uh, they died. And <laughs> little Cain was disappointed anyway. Uh, Adam seemed to think that uh, even Abel, he seemed to think, was some kind of critter, a bear or something. Anyway, this has been Jennifer Stone. I have a spot coming back on the morning show soon. I think probably on Wednesdays, but we will see. I think I'll try to do the movies, because God knows we need to escape. This has been Jennifer Stone back on the air soon. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. celebration of African History Month, the Bay Area Aerosol Heritage Society is proud to present Urban Hieroglyphics, Aerosol 2, an international African diaspora spray can art showcase. The event will kick off on Friday, February 4th from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. at the Joyce Gordon Gallery located at 406 14th Street in downtown Oakland. It will be followed by a month-long series of events including an artist panel, slideshow lectures, youth art workshops, and live painting. All hip-hop cultural elements will be represented. Fee is sliding scale donation, and all proceeds will go to supporting community mural projects. It is open to all ages and free for youth 18 and under. For more information, visit www.aerosolart.org.